Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. On this week's episode of Equal Play, we welcome in Trailblazer on the tennis court and in the boardroom, the first Black person to become president and CEO of the United States Tennis Association, a champion doubles player many times over, and author of Own the Arena, Katrina. Thank you for coming on Equal Play. I am just like beaming right now. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. Yes, we are going to get into so many great topics. Obviously, your new book is is top topic of conversation. But first things first, I want to start with the beginning of your career in tennis. I read that you were six years old when you started playing. So I wonder if you could take us back to that moment and what inspired, prompted, started your career on the tennis court? Yeah. So, you know, I was, I was, uh, I always say I stumbled on the, on the sport because I was a six-year-old tag along sister with my two brothers um, in the summer program. The program was for kids ages nine to 18. So I was obviously underage, but I was very tall and, and mature six-year-old at the time. And um, my brothers hated it. They didn't want to be there, but it was, you know, the Martin Luther King boys club uh, now boys and girls club had a uh, every summer was a different activity. And that summer happened to be tennis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I sat outside the fence for about two weeks until I begged my way onto the courts with the coaches and my parents. And I finally got my shot at it. And I, I loved it from the first moment that I hit the, the first tennis ball. I'm a visual learner. So I'd watch them for a couple of weeks. I knew what not to do. That's for sure. <laughs> um, but I just loved it. And the coaches thought I had potential. And one of them just took me under his wing uh, at the end of that season. And I kept playing. You grew up on Chicago's West side, went to Whitney Young. We talked about it before we started this conversation, a, a great high school in the Chicago area or in Chicago. And you were the first CPS and the first black singles champion in 1983 and 1984. And I wonder how that moment cemented your career in the sport or your future rather in the sport or, or did it not? Were you still questioning other avenues, other other uh, places and spaces that you wanted to dive into? Yeah, you know, tennis is very different than most sports. So for me, you know, high school tennis was something that I had to do, not necessarily that I wanted to do. It was just part of going to high school and and being on the team, which I enjoyed. Um, Illinois State High School, I never really understood the significance of of it until much later because I was playing national tournaments. So it was way more important for me to win 
nationally and I was already winning national tournaments. So when I won, I guess the first time it was like to me just another tournament um, playing peers that I was already playing uh, against and, um, you know, in our USTA events, both in the district and in the section. Um, and I guess when I repeated my senior year, that was probably when I understood that this was a really big deal. Um, but again, I was already playing around the country. And so it didn't really have the same significance at the time as it would for, say, a team event in, in mm -hmm. high school, which really, you know, that's what you strive for is to win uh, state. Right. Uh, but, you know, as I look back, I mean, I also, I also didn't know or understand the significance or even think about it being the first black until many, many years later when the next black won. And I was an adult at that point. And so I was really proud of her, Jerrica, um, you know, to, to understand how significant it was for me to win back in 83 and 84 as a black uh, individual in the state. When you won in 1983, was there an acknowledgement that you were the first black woman, the first black person to win the championship or, or did it just fly under the radar? Uh, I'm sure the Sun-Times probably wrote that. But again, I wasn't in it for that. I mean, me, I, I'm, I'm striving to win every tournament that I play, every event that I played. And I was too young to understand the significance of it. You know, when you're I would say in the 80s, we weren't really talking uh the race card as much as we are here in 2016, tw I'm sorry, 2021 and understanding how significant it is. Yeah. I'm sure my parents kind of mentioned it, but I never looked at myself at, at that time, you know, being different. I was just out there trying to, to win like everybody else. And I, I actually tried to run ride under the radar of the race card, if you will, uh, back then, because I didn't want that to be the reason why people wanted to, you know, interview me or, or to, uh, elevate me. I wanted them to be, I wanted to be recognized for what I was doing on the court. And you certainly accomplished so much on the court. You went on to become a two-time All-American at Northwestern. You led your team to a Big Ten championship in 1986 and won the NCAA doubles title with your partner, Diane Donnelly, in 1987. So by that time in your career, what was the biggest motivating factor? I just like to win. <laughs> freshman year, I went in. I went in. Um, I played number one on the team as a freshman. Uh, you know, you had to play your way on and I, and I earned that position. I had a, 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 an incredible rookie year. Uh, I think it was an All-American or Rookie of the Year. And uh, Diane and I actually lost a tough three-set um, doubles match in the semifinals of the NCAAs that year. I mean, mm -hmm. a heartbreaker. Uh, Tie-breaking a third, I believe. And, um, and we made a vow at that point that we were going to come back and win the following year. Uh, I hated to lose. So, you know, my motivating factor was working hard, hard to win. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the next year, we actually went undefeated. We didn't lose a match all year in, in any head-to-head -head competition, any team competition, what have you. And then we won the, and won the title. So that was thrilling and exhilarating and exciting and all the other adjectives that you want to use for me uh, at Northwestern and, and winning with Diane. 
at that stage in your career, that early stage in your career, who were some of your biggest inspirations in the sport? Who were you looking to and, you know, comparing yourself, being motivated by just learning from? Well, you know, obviously being, as we have alluded to on, on this, this chat so far, being Black, Arthur Ashe was someone that I looked up to and admired. Althea Gibson, who was, you know, much older, but someone that I admired and understood uh, the challenges that she had coming through the sport. Uh, you know, I had a chance to really establish a relationship with Billie Jean King in college, you know, mm-hmm. as a freshman in college and and started to learn more about what she had done and what she had accomplished and the significance of she and the original nine starting the WTA tour, which I aspired to be on. And so those are the people that I really kind of looked up to that were much more senior. I would say closer in age were people like Zena Garrison, who in 1981 was the number one junior in the world, you know, and turned pro and and went on to be top 10, top four, I think was her highest uh, ranking. But, you know, those are the people that I aspired to be because I was like, if she could do it, I could do it too. Uh, McNeil was also top 10, you know, before I turned pro. And, and, and so those were the people that I, I really admired. I would say as far as uh, idols, you know, Martina Navratilova was a servant volleyer, as was I. So that was someone who's whenever I could watch television or, or they were on television, I was watching her play. I was watching John McEnroe play. And there, of course, they were both left-handers, um, a righty, righty, but the significance and the, and the strategy and the tactics that were used uh, were reasons why I, I really admired them um, growing up. Definitely. You know, you, you mentioned earlier in the conversation that, um, acknowledgement of, of the quote unquote race card was not, was not a major factor during your early years playing. So during those early years playing was gender a factor? Were you, were you all as women thinking about coming up in this sport and the challenges that, you know, I'm sure you were enduring and also were, were going to face as professionals in the sport? Yeah, I remember we are talking, I started playing in 1975 and graduated from high school in 1985. So that still was not, you know, it wasn't prominent of a conversation back then. I mean, we mm-hmm. were thrilled to have a professional tour to be out there earning, you know, what was a good living then. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's peanuts compared to what they're, what they're earning now. Right. Uh, you know, our, our, we had a hell of a lot of tournaments in, in the U.S., professional tournaments. The Virginia Slims Tour was like the tour. Right. And so we definitely had equality when it came to tournaments and opportunities back in the 80s. I turned pro in 88. And so not until I would say in the 90s when um, now I'm an adult, you know, I turned pro at 19. So and, and starting to dive a little deeper into the inequities perhaps of between the WTA tour and the ATP tour and sponsors that they had that we didn't have, et cetera. Did I start to pay a little more attention to that? But as a, as a kid, you know, I, I played the, you know, I played every national tournament. There was a boys and girls age group. Um, every, every section, you know, it was a boys and girls age, age group. So I didn't understand or even know that there were inequities as, as a junior growing up, because my opportunities were the same. Mm -hmm. You know, 
you mentioned the original nine and it was almost 51 years ago that they signed the dollar bill and formed their own tennis tour on September 23rd in 1970. And all these years later, there are still so many gaping holes in equality for women in sports and beyond sports. So looking back and and thinking about the number of years, almost 51 years, what's the significance of that moment? And where would we be without that moment? Well, that that moment was was huge. Um, You're talking about nine women that went out on a limb and, you know, it was you know, there's a, a category called amateur tennis and professional tennis. Uh, and tennis became open in 1968 when it was an open field, you could earn money, et cetera. So in, in 1970 or 68, 69, and into 70, the women still were not getting uh, equal opportunities to play in events, to play alongside their male counterparts. They definitely were not getting equal prize money uh, anywhere. Equal prize money didn't happen until 1973 at the U.S. Open. Um, And that's really because Billie Jean King and the women said they were boycott if they didn't play or didn't get uh, equal pay. And and so what these ladies did, and they were global, they're from all over the world. They they weren't just American, but they had the courage and and the you know, the perseverance and, and just the gall to go out and say, this is what we're going to do. They signed a $1 contract, $1 contract to make themselves uh, a part of this, you know, professional team or prof- professionals to start this tour. And if it didn't happen then, yes. Would it have happened later? Yes. Um, we, I don't know when it would have been. I don't know how significant it would have been if it had been done in a different way. But when you look back, I mean, I'm, I'm very grateful for all of the women of the original nine and the other women who weren't there that week or that day to be a part of it. It could have been an original 12 had other women actually been there, but, or, or, or more. Um, But yeah, I cherish the opportunity to thank each and every one of them whenever I can uh, when I was a president of the USTA, I, I recognized and celebrated their 45th anniversary mm-hmm. at the US Open. It's, uh, we had festivities, we had on-court uh, presentations, videos, awards, the whole nine. And, and here we are, you know, last year was their 50th anniversary. They just recently got uh, the nod to be inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame, which <laughs> will be this year in 2021. And I'm just... And I'm just sad that 2020 ended up the way that it did with the pandemic, where we couldn't celebrate them on their 50th. But hopefully this year we'll be able to have some celebratory uh, occasions for them. But Absolutely. I could not agree with that more. You know, we'll still celebrate the 50th, even though obviously it's 51. But, you know, this generation of women in sports are are facing similar but very different challenges. Women, like the women we just talked about, were creating and building space that did not exist. And today's women, I'm seeing a a different struggle and this transition take place of being, from being thankful for the opportunity to now fighting and acknowledging that we're not just thankful to be here. We deserve equality and equity in our sports. 
So what about this new generation of women in sport inspires you and, you know, makes you believe that the next 50 years are going to be much different than the last 50? Yeah, I admire the women of today. Uh, you know, they, they have a voice. They're owning their voice. They're owning their courage. They're stepping up to the to the bat and to the plate every single day and in, in across all sports. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you think about the U.S. women's soccer team from a few years ago, you know, winning the World Cup and, and, and bringing to light the inequities of them, of how they were being recognized, being paid, et cetera, versus the men's team. The men's team sucked. to put it lightly yeah they weren't winning the women were winning year after year cup after cup and they're working just as hard if not harder actually worked harder because they played more matches they played more games right and yet they were the what the disparity was was heartbreaking um and then you you see what the women's hockey uh team and it's just you know it's across the board the WNBA now having their cba you know, negotiations and, and getting more. And, and, and so I'm proud of the women because, you know, we are humans as well. We're individuals who are perfecting our crafts in our respective sports. We're working, uh, put in as many hours as our male counterparts, sometimes more, depending on what our deficiencies are to make sure that we can, can raise our level. And we're going out and performing and, and being the best that we can be and representing you know, our teams and, and we're not getting recognized and paid for it. And, and it's an issue. I mean, even, even, geez, you see what happened just with the NCAA's uh, basketball, the March right. Madness, right? <laughs> see what, how the women were treated and, and not being recognized as these elite athletes with, with an elite status presentation is just absurd. And it was too big of a miss for them to say it was an oversight. Right. So, you know, no fitness. I, I think they just forgot to fill it and they just said, oh, well, here, we'll put some weights there. I would have rather there have been nothing in that room than to have a rack of weight, a rack of weights to say, okay, well, these will do. Right. And then you look at the swag bag and, and everything else. And and hopefully that this is the end of that type of treatment from any level in our sport, um, whether it's, you know, junior, you know, high school, college and, and professionals, and that we really start to get traction towards equality. Equal payday obviously just passed. And these women are, are a voice not only for, for women in, in professional sports, but women across the board. And like I just mentioned, social media is a place where you could vocalize any problem you're faced with. But there is this idea that that women shouldn't talk about their salaries, shouldn't talk about their pay. And a lot of that is because it's a way to control the fact that women are underpaid or aren't paid equally. So before we transition into your career a little bit more, I wonder what your advice is for women in speaking about their salary and speaking about, you know, what you're paid and, um, you know, making sure that you're paid equally for what you're doing. It's a new day and, and we need to be recognized for our talents, no matter what, what industry it's in. And, you know, as you mentioned, 
the power of the phone now allows us to show truths um, and, 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 and expose the untruths. And, you know, in a situation just as, as, as visible as the NCAA March Madness, you know, if they didn't have, if the women didn't have the phones and the social platform or what have you, media might not have even picked it up because they would have been silenced from acknowledging it. And, and that's just one example. There's been, you know, there's thousands of examples that we've seen over and over again in the social media platform. And so for our women, it's important that we do own our voice and that we do own our courage. These are all the things I talk about in my book, Own the Arena, because we have to bring to light um, the inequities that we have. Mm. Not, we will not have the opportunities to continue to move upward and, and break that glass ceiling mm. if we are silent and we're just sitting back and accepting what's happening to us because the possibilities are, are endless for us. So I always say be bold in all things and make sure that we are, you know, make sure you got your facts right, first of all, um, and, and make sure that you have supporting, you know, video documents, whatever that is. But we as women need to band together more and support one another more so that we can continue to lift each other up. You know, we have to rely on our men to pull us for, to pull us upward. Right. Um, they are the leaders of these organizations and companies, et cetera. And we need our men to be sponsors for, of us and to support us on our journey mm-hmm. and, and that path that we are leading to, to climb that ladder. And once we get there as women, we have to be able to pull other women up because that's where the numbers will grow exponentially is by other women pulling other women forward because- right. You know, it's, I've had multiple opportunities in the last year, a couple of years, you know, of, of being invited to boards or advisory boards. And, and, and the fact of the matter is it's filling a quota, but that's okay because now it's my duty and responsibility to make sure that I make recommendations of other women mm-hmm. to, to come on, not to take my place, but to sit by my side mm-hmm. and, of course, there are other women that I feel that may be more knowledgeable or, 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 or worthy in certain areas, but that's, it's important that I make sure that they're recognized. And, and that's, uh, you know, that's where 2021 has brought us is a louder voice and an opportunity to speak. Absolutely. That's some of the best advice I ever got in my career. I was interviewing players uh, in the PWHPA and Billie Jean King was spoke ahead of, of the athletes. And she was like, we are here to the, the female, the women journalists here in this room. It's, it's your duty to support the women athletes and together like lift each other up to accomplish more. So that's a great point. And you detail your journey in tennis as a trailblazer in your new book on the arena. When did this vision come to you to write this book? Was it in your career years ago or during your career years ago, or was it recently and you put it all together? Yeah. You know, I, I, it, I always say I had no intentions of writing a book, <laughs> writing a book really, really ever thought, but I will say, I want I don't want to say I never wanted to, I would say early on, I thought it was something I would. And then I, as I 
you know, got to of age, I'm like, there's no purpose for me writing a book. I don't need to, because I was looking at it as more of a, an autobiography type thing. I'm like, no one needs, I'm my own person. And what I do is what I do. Um, but it's, it was, I was approached to write the book from a leadership perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and once I was convinced of that, and I said, Kat, you've accomplished so much. You have so much to share, you know, look at all the accomplishments that you've had. I said, okay, um, from that perspective, yes. And, and so I had to kind of dig deep. I did work with a, with a collaborator to help me with an outline and understand how I wanted to frame the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and together we came up with the final, the final product, but, um, I'm, I'm pleased, you know, with, with the end result, this book was written in 2019. It was mm-hmm. supposed to come out in 2020 in July, but then the pandemic came and et cetera. So, uh, I don't want to say it's outdated because it's not, but I, I, I'm certain that I probably would have, maybe added some things or done some things a little bit differently or addressed other issues uh, more poignantly than I did, particularly with the title, uh, subtitle being as the only one, which Mm -hmm. is being either the only woman or for me, only black person in the room or person of color. And, you know, with the experiences that we had with the racial pandemic last year, Mm -hmm. it brought to light a lot of different, um, situations that you start to reflect on. But, you know, when I, when I look back, um, you know, I would say I'm, I didn't get here by myself. There's a lot of shoulders that I stood on and a lot of footprints that I walked in to accomplish the things that I did. So I'm very honored to be able to recognize many of those people that, you know, held out their hand along the way. You start the book reflecting on the 2018 Women's U.S. Open final between Naomi and Serena. Last names are are (laughs) obsolete here when talking about these two women. But looking back on that moment now, how do you view it? How do you see it? And how do you write about it in the book? That would not change because that was that was my accurate recollection as to what happened, what my experience was. Uh Um, and, And so I tell that story exactly. I would. The, the exact way that I did, you know, two days after the event and, and 20 years later. So nothing would have changed uh, as far as that story, because that's a recollection of a factual situation. Mm-hmm. What are you most proud about in putting this book out and writing this book? Um, I, I think the fact that one people like it <laughs> and that it resonates with, with so many, uh, you know, no matter what their gender, age, race, ethnicity is that I've, I've had a lot of, uh, people contact me on social media, people I don't know to say, Hey, I read your book and I totally saw myself here, or it made me reflect on my life and, and bring to light some things. And a lot of thank yous that I got for just, uh, being authentic and, and telling the story and, and shedding some light or more light on who I am as an individual. And, and so um, I would say I'm most proud of one, being able to call myself an author, because that's not something that was ever uh, a goal that I had set forth um, in my life. But when I, I look at the 12 chapters and I name them, you know, the 12 winning match points, I mean, these are, these are 
this is how I live my life. And this mm -hmm. is how I've been able to climb the ladder. And, and this is how I've been able to help so many others along the way. And I took some thought to come up with the, uh, with those particular titles because the book was written and then I came up with uh, the names of those match points. So, uh, yeah, I guess there's some creativity in there, but it really resonates with, with all. Do you have a favorite chapter? Do you have a favorite match point that, um, maybe is means the most to you or. Yeah, I wouldn't say I have a favorite chapter, but I mean, I think, you know, I mentioned it a little while ago about, you know, owning your courage Yeah, because we have to have the courage to be able to move forward and, and be bold in all things that we do and to create opportunities. You know, we, a lot of us sit back and wait for the opportunities to come to us and they will pass us by with the blink of an eye if we're not uh, assertive and alert. Mm -hmm. and, and so for me, I talk about, you know, making sure that you have it. I have my own personal board, which is a, a collaboration of, of friends, colleagues, et cetera, that have expertise in areas that are not my strength that I can lean on and reach out to and, and, and ask questions or, or get ideas, which is very different than your village. Who's really your family and friends who are there to support you at all costs. Uh, and uplift you emotionally. And, you know, I think those are some of the, the key areas that I, I focus on. Um, you know, the first chapter, when we talk about the 2018 U.S. Open, you know, the reason why I was there and in that position is because I was a, the chairman of the U.S. Open, president of the USTA, that put me in a position to present the trophy. Right. And so... You know, you got you have to understand how to own the table to to create opportunities for yourself, too. And I always say I don't want to just have a, a seat at the table. I want to own it. And it's not to say being the chair, but it's being able to own my presence, own my knowledge and own my diversity of thought that I bring to the conversation mm -hmm. at the that resonates so hard because it's not just about getting there. It's about making the most of it once you are there. So that is such an important point. Uh, backtracking just slightly, you retired scoring 20 career double titles professionally. And at that time, what would you say was your goal after retiring? Were you committed to a career in tennis or where was your mind at when you did retire from playing? Well, you know, while I was playing, I actually thought I wanted to become a, a professional golfer. <laughs> uh, I played a lot of golf. I was fairly good at it. Um, but I knew when I retired, my body was breaking down, which is one of the reasons why I stopped playing. Uh -huh. And at that point, trying to go into a sport that was just as physical in a different way. Uh, at, that, I, at that time, I didn't have the patience or desire or tenacity to want to spend um hours after hours, hour after hour after hour practicing for golf, because that was very, very uh, important in that, in that arena. I did become a national coach to work with our younger players for that were making the transition from juniors to the pros. I did that for about four years, but commentating was something that I always wanted to do. It was a goal I had set at a very young age. I don't know why, 
But I think just because watching television, I thought it was a natural progression that allow that would allow me to stay in the sport, um, continue to harness the relationships that I had and build new ones with the next generation. And that's what I did. I went into commentating for, I still commentate, not as often as I did. I mean, early on, that was pretty much, um, you know, every weekend or every other weekend. But, um, you know, I wanted to rely, I wanted to be able to fall back on the education that I had, which was studying communications and not realizing then that everything we do is about communicating. So whether it's broadcasting, whether it's in the boardroom, whether it's, you know, just in, a, in any meeting, um, understanding what those skills are is very important. So that's where I went. And, and once I got into the boardroom of the USTA or on the board, then I started to, uh, years, years later, started to think about being uh, the leader. And, and that's what I really focused on uh, probably the last four years before I became the president of the USTA. Once you got into the boardroom, what were concrete and had the dream to become president? What were concrete steps you took towards making sure that dream was realized? Yeah, it's um, like I said, it was, it was really about preparing. And, and I started to view the business differently. You know, when you're on a board, you you're there and you're focusing on the business, but you're there to make um, suggestions, you vote on issues, et cetera. When you start to think about being a leader, you, you, your intake is different. The things that you hear now are different than what that you heard a year before, because you start to view them differently, whether it's budget, whether it's goals, whether it's strategic directions, et cetera. And so those are the things that I started to view differently. I started to, uh, ask different questions that were deeper under the surface as opposed to just topical questions on a topic. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really how I uh, prepared myself going forward when, and, and was prepared when that opportunity came, came forth. You obviously have held this, this phrase, the first two in multiple moments in your career. And I've spoken to a lot of women. I've had the privilege of speaking to a lot of women who have also shared that the first two before their name. And with that comes a lot of weight. There's a lot of weight to being the first to do something. And so for you, what does that weight symbolize and how did you carry that pressure and not be stifled by it? You know, I think, I think, as a tennis player, it w- there were things that I learned that um, that prepared me for that for for that moment. You know, the, and I and I'm someone that actually had the has and have the confident confidence to to step into a new position and and know that I can do it. But I I knew that I could do it from the start, which is why I agreed to be it and and, and really wanted to go for it. But the pressure was more so on myself to make sure that I did it better than anyone. Mm-hmm. And I knew I was not only just representing myself and my family um, and the USTA, but I also was representing an entire culture of people of color because I was the first. And so that's where the pressure uh, kind of surmounted 
for me and, and knowing that I had to come correct every time I took the mic or was in front of a camera or anywhere in the public eye to make sure that I looked my best and that I sounded my best so that I could represent and make sure that no one could ever say anything negative that, about me in any situation. Is that, does that ever get frustrating? Like, again, I speak to so many women and that's what the message that they send that they have to be perfect in every moment of their career so that someone gets an opportunity behind them. And I, I, this might be a stupid question, but does that, does that burden ever get frustrating? Uh, you know, I guess it's a, I guess it's as Billie Jean, Billie Jean King says, prep, uh, pressure is a privilege. Yeah. And so does it get frustrating? Yeah. Because every time I step up, I know what I have to do. Right. And I can never let my guard down and I have to always come correct because right. there's always someone that's there to, to scrutinize everything I say and do. And, and so you know, even running my program, the Harlem Junior Tennis and Education Program here, um, it's, it's a program very similar to one that I grew up in in Chicago. But my passion and, and whole desire of being there is to be able to reach back and pull, even if it's just one child, although it's been thousands, um, forward to give them an opportunity to succeed in life, then I've done my job. Mm-hmm. And so whether I'm on television commentating, I have to, you know, roll my R's and pronounce my T's and L's and whatever else that might be, because someone is going to be there to say, see, I told you so. Right. And so that's just the pressure. We as, as black people, we're scrutinized every single day. Mm-hmm. We as women, we're scrutinized every single day. And, and so that's why opportunities like this to be able to tell my story and, and, and in my own words in the book uh, on the arena, it allows me to do that without really being scrutinized. Absolutely. I am very much looking forward to reading the book. And before we wrap up here, I just have a few more questions for you. Um, you are currently serving as the vice president of the International Tennis Federation, chairman of the Billie Jean King Cup Committee, chairman of the Gender Equality and Tennis Committee, and the executive director of the Harlem Junior Tennis and Education Program, which you just mentioned. And of course, an author. What goals are you being driven by at this moment in your career? For me, it's about being the best that I can be in everything that I do. Uh, I'm always about, I don't do anything that I don't feel that I can make a difference in. Mm -hmm. And I don't do anything that I don't feel that making that difference is helping someone else move up and pulling someone forward. So that's what drives me when, when I, my work with the International Tennis Federation is really, is really and truly on a global level. And I know that there are some countries where equality isn't quite what it is here in America. And so I am, you know, I inspire a lot of women globally in, in my role and what I do at the ITF. And um, being the chair of this committee is creating those opportunities and direction for many of our nations to try to understand why gender equality is imperative in, in areas. It's not about gender equality of being on the tennis court because that's equal. It's really about making sure that women have a voice 
in their organizations, in their associations, in the on committees, on commissions, um, you know, in the boardroom to be leaders in in these various countries. And, you know, the Billie Jean King Cup, uh, formerly known as Fed Cup, there's no better person in the world to rename that event after someone who stands for equality, uh, someone who stands for greatness, someone who stands uh, and represents women um, so wonderfully. And so I'm honored to, uh, it, you know, that someone who rec- represents parity and, and that's what we're trying to do with the ITF and in renaming that event and, and having new sponsors come along, you know, we're able to offer equal prize money to what the men were making at Davis Cup per individual. And so I think that's the most important thing, um, you know, that I'm, that I'm representing there in the ITF. Absolutely. I read you have a mantra, embrace the path that you lead and enjoy the battle. What does that mean to you? Yeah, I, I, I kind of created that quote, um, I don't know, years ago, because I wanted to know what is it, what is it that truly resonates with me? And, you know, when we don't know what path we're going to be given, particularly as, as young people, right? Mm-hmm. We're born into situations that we don't control. Right. And, and so once we have the ability to go down a certain, choose a certain path, and particularly if it's one that's positive, we have to embrace it, understanding that I didn't choose it. And if I want to succeed, I have to enjoy the battle because we always talk about the journey, right? right. But the journey in essence is truly a battle because there's a lot of ups and downs in there. And there, there are a lot of obstacles and we have to understand that, to get to the mountaintop, to get to the other side, to get to the end of the tunnel. It's going to be a battle. But if I embrace this path and understand while I'm on, why I am on it, then I can put myself in a position to succeed. Definitely. You know, uh, here in America, we love to glorify people's highlight reels and we love to pull from the most shining moments in a person's career and try and learn from those moments. But it's truly the battle, like you just described, that we learn the most from. So for you in your career, what lesson took you the longest to learn or or you're still learning, but has provided the most value in your journey? I would say that I can't I can't do anything alone. And I don't, I, I can't move forward by myself. It's, so I, I talk about that a lot in my book of all the people that I've stood on and the shoulders that I've stood on, the footprints that I've walked in. Um, there are times where I felt that I could do it all or that I needed to do it all. And it's just definitely not the case. Um, mm-hmm. A great leader is someone that has the ability to delegate and to recognize uh, and a applaud their uh, employees and or partners or board members or whomever they might be to take up some of the slack um, in areas where they have the expertise and, and not feel like I need to have my hand in everything. And so those are those are the lessons that I've learned. Uh, and, and it's the lessons that um, and from that, you know, the next endeavors that I uh, embark on that hopefully I can live by that. Absolutely. Last question for you. I've asked all of my guests this because everyone provides such a different answer, but what is your hope for the future of women in sports and, and more specifically in tennis? 
Well, you know, I, 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 uh, I really hope that there's more parity and equality in our sport for opportunities. The opportunity is to actually play, perform, make it equal living, um, to be represented, to be supported, to be sponsored and et cetera. Um, our, our female athletes deserve that um, because, as I mentioned early on, they work just as hard, if not harder, mm-hmm. than our male counterparts. And if we can get society to recognize the true talent that these women have, yeah, they may not run as fast or are as strong or jump as high as our men, but if you really start to look at just the tactics, we're, we're smarter on the court, we're smarter on the fields. You know, the tactics that are in play, we're not just blowing by and blowing, you know, blowing shots by our opponents. We have to be a little more strategic, which is evident of, as to how strategic we are in the classroom and in the boardrooms and in the offices. Um, so that's, that's, where I, that's where I would like to see women's sports. And as for tennis, you know, the sky's the limit. These women continue to show their greatness year in and year out. So there's always the next group of, of youngsters who will be the fut- future champions of our sport. Um, keep, keep voicing their opinions, um, their positive thoughts, and, and hopefully someday the tours, the Grand Slams are, always equal, are already equal in prize money, but hopefully the WTA Tour and the ATP Tour will also have equality um, as well as a number of players in the collegiate level. A great point to end on Katrina. You've dropped so many gems on this episode and I know our listeners will be able to pull so much value from everything that you shared with us. I just want to thank you again for your time and your insight and the value that you've given to equal play. It is so very much appreciated. Some people just know bundling with Allstate means big savings. Just like they know the right ingredient means big flavor. They know honey on pizza is where it's at. And olive oil on ice cream is the cherry on top. And they know when you bundle home and auto with Allstate, you can save up to 25%. Mm -mm. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. Allstate Vehicle and Property Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.